Welcome to the 382nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome MD, MBA, Thomas Irwin to discuss medical education in the time of COVID. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 23rd, 2021, there are 5,162,494 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is final year passed now. Final year medical students post goes viral after his death due to COVID-19 in Pune. It's appeared in the timesnownews.com of India, May 27th, 2021. Final year medical student, Dr. Rahul Asha Vishwanath Pawar passed away while fighting with coronavirus on Wednesday, May 26th, 2021. In a post on April 26th, Rahul Pawar captioned a photo of himself with the words, final year passed now, it's officially Dr. Rahul Asha Vishwanath Pawar. A cane harvester's son, Dr. Pawar was the family's first physician. Dr. Pawar, who has an outstanding academic record, was accepted to the five-year MBBS program at Maharashtra Institute of Medical Science and Research, Latour. Rahul's older brother, Sakin, dropped out of school to help him become a doctor. Rahul attended government schools during his early years. The young doctor returned to his village soon after completing his final examination in April. He started showing symptoms of COVID-19 on April 26th and was admitted to Majalgan Hospital in Bead District. Following his worsening condition, he was moved to MGM Medical College and Hospital in Aurangabad. By May 6th, our internships had started, but Rahul was admitted. His brothers would talk to us daily to understand his condition, Dr. Gutta said, as per the Indian Express. He had exhausted all means of financing his treatment at that point when his friends decided to crowdsource it. Several friends contributed to a social media campaign to raise funds on May 20th. Was this move that attracted the attention of the authorities, which led the Minister of Medical Education to announce that his treatment would be sponsored? All this happened once we took the social media. By then, the hospital had already decided to waive the further cost of his treatment. Dr. Gutta and his friends realized Rahul's serious condition when he was placed on a mechanical ventilator, even though the family was hopeful he would be able to recover. The last time he spoke to us on May 15th through video call, he expressed his desire to join his internship soon.
headline was final year passed now final year medical students post goes viral after his death due to COVID-19. Dr. Rahul Asha Vishwanath Pawar. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Dr. Tom Irwin. Tom Irwin is a Hi. graduate of the MD MBA program at the University of Kansas School of Medicine in Kansas City. He worked as an opera singer and a bass player for nearly two decades before medical school. Since making a living as a musician requires other work as well, his other employment has included professional sound and music instrument sales, officiating in minor league hockey, and producing television news in Louisiana and Tennessee. He's a native of New Orleans. He has degrees in music from the University of New Orleans and the University of Northern Colorado. He and his wife, who's a meteorologist, have two children. He's currently doing a research year with the University of Kansas Cancer Center's Melanoma Project. Dr. Irwin, thank you for joining me on COVID Calls today. Dr. Knowles, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm going to call you Tom, but I thought uh, since you recently graduated, we should use that. Uh, and <laughs> congratulations. Thanks so much. My, the degree still smells like a new car. So I, I'm the getting called Dr. Irwin is still a little bit weird. He's like, no, 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 no. Dr. Irwin's my dad. I'm just Tom. But whatever well, works. And I, people call me Dr. Knowles, but as a historian, I, I, I'm i a little limited in the medical advice I can give. But <laughs> if, you know, if you have historical problems, I can help you with that. But uh, Professor is probably probably a little safer. Where, uh, where are you calling from and what's the pandemic situation look like there? So I'm calling from an outskirts from one of the suburbs of Kansas City called Overland Park, Kansas. Uh, for the uninitiated, Kansas City straddles the Kansas-Missouri border. So I'm on the Kansas side and uh, can't go into too many details because it's technically protected information, but our number of cases inpatient right now, number close to 40, and they're about a half and half mix of active disease and recovery. Uh, I don't have the ICU number sitting in front of me, but the one thing to take away is that of our 40 patients inpatient right now, one is vaccinated. All the other ones are unvaccinated. Is that a trend that you feel pretty confident with at this point, saying that that's, that's just reality now? It seems to be the case. I mean, we're, we're, we're hovering somewhere around 75% vaccination nationwide. We don't have solid numbers for who's vaccinated in the Kansas City area or in the state of Kansas or in the state of Missouri specifically, that are that they fluctuate, it seems, on a daily basis. But what we're seeing is that if you're vaccinated, you're far less likely to get hospitalized for COVID. Uh, I mean, there, there are some debates on how long the, the vaccine holds on for you and what, what its efficacy is in terms of, of keeping you from getting sick. The only thing that I can tell you from personal experience is until lately, I was dealing with a lot of COVID patients on a fairly regular basis, and I got vaccinated. The double vaccine in, uh, finished in February, and I've been around enough of it and haven't gotten sick. So, you know, I seems to work pretty well for me. So, I wonder, you know, with the booster now being recommended by the mm -hmm. CDC or being authorized, I guess is a better yeah. language. I'm not sure if they're recommending or authorizing. Maybe it's both. But um, do, do you know? I yeah, they, they, at this point, I believe it's being recommended. I mean, it's recommended. certainly all all adults are authorized for it. I'm sitting down to get mine tomorrow so that I can enjoy Thanksgiving dinner while feeling like I just got kicked yeah. in the head. But that's okay. 
<laughs> well, timing being as it is, giving what what you do for a living, I'm glad you're doing it. And and I was just was going to ask because that would indicate to me that maybe you would start to see people in in the emergency department who had breakthrough infections who had been vaccinated, but that's not what you're describing. That's, and the thing is, I'd have to ask my emergency room friends right now, again, working with the Melanoma Project, I do a lot more oncology work and I'm around a lot more surgical stuff. The emergency friends I've got say that the people who are coming in largely appear to be unvaccinated. But again, I don't have hard numbers. So if I can't back it up with numbers, I'm almost, I'm not reluctant to put it out there, but I will tell you that again, according to our numbers, it's a pretty clear trend that if you, if you get vaccinated, you're far less likely to wind up coming to see us and needing to stay with us. So, a, a more general question, just given where you are geographically, so you've got a vantage point on the way that Kansas and Missouri have handled the pandemic. Big differences mm -hmm. in the way the two states have approached it, or they're in step. The, well, you know, the the thing the the thing that has largely happened here is that both states have taken somewhat of a hands off approach. Uh, you see more aggressive measures, particularly with masking in the major metropolitan areas. Well, there's only one or two, two uh, significance, the wrong term, that sounds horribly snobbish and I apologize. But the two major metropolitan areas in Kansas are Wichita and, Can and the, the Kansas side of Kansas City. In Missouri, you have St. Louis and Kansas City, but you also have Springfield. Springfield is the southwest corner of Missouri, and they had a really hard time with it. Um, and they had they had a very high hospitalization rate. They also had a lot more vaccine holdouts. But in general, I think that what we're seeing is there is a much less aggressive approach to mandates here that has really put the decisions in the hands of the individual patients, uh, for lack of a better word, individual citizens, really. And that has led to slower uptake in some in some parts of, the, of both states. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. You have people who are a lot less angry about what they might consider government overreach, but at the same time, you also have a fair number of people who got really, really, really sick. So, you know, you, you kind of have to pick your poison there. Thanks for that that sure. uh, sort of landscape view there. You know, whenever I get a chance to talk to somebody who lives on a state line in the United States, it's it's important to try to, to see how states have collaborated through all of this. I think those differences are probably maybe more pronounced earlier in the pandemic uh, than they are by this by this point. I wonder, you know, just speaking personally, would you share a memory of your time in in COVID? Something that sticks with you, you know, that really defines this time for you. There are a couple. Uh, the first one's kind of a downer, so I apologize in advance, but the end of the first week, my dog who had been with me, she'd made it to, to 12 years old. She'd been with me through the birth, the births of both my children, had been with me when I, when I left the opera business to go back to school to go, and to get into medical school. She passed away. She had a, she uh, had a brain tumor and that, that cost her her life. And that was that was not the way that I wanted to kick off my time in quarantine. At the same time, the memory is that, that there are some positive ones as well. By hook or by crook, I wound up getting to spend a lot more time with my children. And particularly as I enter the next phase of my career where my time is very definitely not my own, not that it really was in the first place, but still, 
being able to spend time with my children, being able to spend time outdoors, getting away from the screens, getting into nature. Again, on the Kansas side, because of them taking a much less aggressive approach, you could still go outside. You didn't have to pin the kids up inside and things like that. So we were able to go take big nature walks and we were able to go see a lot of wildlife Nightside walks, watching the owls fledged, watching the deer come out, watching the rabbits come out. There was, a, there really was a lot of good to it, and I, if anything, I think it strengthened my relationship with my kids. Well, I'm sorry about the loss of your of your dog, especially at that time. And uh, that's those two different stories are intention, but I think they really capture what a lot of people have have gone through to this well, time. And uh, yeah. I, I, the, the the people that I, that I talked to that I felt the worst for, my sister lives in New York City, and they were locked down. And right. and some of my friends who were in 400, 800 square foot apartments were going stir crazy after a couple of weeks. And that was not something that I wanted to experience. I, I knew what they were going through. It, you know, Again, I mean, a lot of my friends from the opera business who were still in the New York City area were saying, uh, when they let us out of here, can we come visit? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's probably a healthy thing for you to do. Come, come out to fly over country and see how flyover it is. You might actually want to stay. So, yeah. right, right. Well, um, just to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Dr. Thomas Irwin today about, uh, what it's like to be a new doctor in this time of COVID-19. And I want to get to that. I want to get to every detail of that. But first of all, I want to find out, since you have such an interesting um, background before medicine, why did you decide, well, let's let's back up even before that about your music sure. career. Tell us a little yeah. bit about your, um, you know, your life in music. And then I'm interested to know, going from that, why you decided to go and transition into medicine. Well, the music career w was interesting for, um, I was, I made my living primarily as an opera singer and sang in something like 37 to 50 states. Uh, this is going to sound like resume dropping, but over 60 leading and supporting roles in opera houses, doing concert work, doing musical theater around the United States, a little bit in Canada, a little bit in the Dominican Republic, blah, blah, blah. And the, the other thing that I also did was I was a bass player. I was primarily a rock bass player, but I have some jazz training as well. So I wound up also playing bass, uh, either in support, of, in, in support of acts, you know, you might've heard of and things like that and, and rubbing elbows with a lot of name artists and things of that ilk. What happened was I knew I wanted to be a doctor when I was three years old. My father's a doctor, my grandfather's a doctor. And I think, and I will think until the end of my days and my father secretly at night wears a big red cape with a yellow S on it and gallivants around the, around the world saving lives. Most of this is true. And so when I was growing up, though, I started to show talent in music and all of the doctors in my life all told me the same thing. They said, do the music thing until the wheels fall off. If you if you stop doing music, if it stops being fun, medicine will always be here for you. And it's certainly an unusual path to take to get into medicine, but they sure were right uh, the, uh, into what really kind of set things into motion for the career change was in 2008, we had the subprime housing financial crisis. And that sank a lot of major opera companies around the United States. And so you had groups like Opera Pacific, which were in Anaheim, California. You had Opera Orlando, you had Opera Baltimore, et cetera, et cetera. 
New York City Opera wound up going under, San Francisco Opera came very close to going under, and so on and so forth. And what that does is it's comparable to what would happen if you contracted, say, eight Major League Baseball teams. All of a sudden, you have a bunch of Major League talent all fighting for a lot fewer jobs. It puts downward pressure on the people who are batting in the minors. And I had just come off of 24 months straight of nonstop work. I had lived out of a suitcase and slept in my own bed for maybe six weeks out of the year in uh, 2007 and 2008. And I started and I had some contracts still to fulfill through 2009. But my wife looked at me and I looked at her and, and we kind of came to the conclusions like if you're going to get out, now's the time, because if you don't get out now, you may not be able to when you want to. And so what happened was I, I ran out the rest of my contracts through the end of 2009, but quietly decided, let me go back and take general chemistry in five weeks at the University of Texas at Arlington. I have made better decisions in my life. I got a B. I, mean, I, I was proud of that, but that was an unholy workload after not seeing math for 10 years. So it was uh, it was a rude awakening to, yeah, you're going to be working, Tom. Here we go. So, Wow. Um, well, being from Arlington, born and raised, I can totally picture that probably the building you went into and what that what that looked like, although as a historian, uh, chemistry was never my strong suit. But um, <laughs> just to, just follow up on that a little bit, maybe just to talk about the experience of, of performing like that. What what was it that sustained you through that? Is it is it the music it's, itself? Was it the sort of relationship with the audience? I mean, opera is a is a really highly specific art form. is incredibly demanding on performers. I mean, all forms are, but that one I think of as very strenuous. Well, a lot of what drove me for a while was when you get out of graduate school, because what happens with most people is you don't hatch from your undergrad being ready to go out and take on a lot of major roles. There's a there's a there's a physical growth process that still continues where the male voice doesn't really hit its peak until the age of about 45 through about the age of 55 to 60. With women, it's a little earlier, but the same kind of thing applies and you kind of have to grow into your voice. So a lot of folks wind up doing a master's degree unless they're unless they're just rock star, you know, demigod status coming out of undergraduate. And so a lot of what I did was what we call outreach opera. You wind up going into schools around the country and singing basically 30 minute performances that are usually greatest hits, but they're they're kid based. And I got a lot out of that. Uh, my my first big job coming out of graduate school was with Shreveport Opera in northwest Louisiana. And I worked with them for two years and we were in schools something like six days a week for for the better part of two years straight and it was wonderful it was some of the most fulfilling work that i did and i still continued to do some outreach as time went on but by the time 2007 rolled around i had done another outreach tour with what is now opera saratoga what was then lake george opera which is up in saratoga springs new york and the general director, who is now the general director of First Coast Opera in Jack in St. Augustine, Florida, hi Kurt, um, he said, "Listen, you need to wrap up the outreach stuff. You've got to start making a living now." And he was right. And so, I did eighteen months of nothing but main stage work all over the place. And when I got to the end of it, what really struck me was it wasn't as fulfilling. I still love the music, and I still. I still sing as much as I can. Uh, I mean, obviously, my time is much more limited now, but 
the music wasn't enough to make going to work and working that hard for that little return on investment worth it at that point. I loved my friends. I loved my singer colleagues. But what really struck me as time went on was I realized that I wanted to be a mechanic for my singer friends more than I wanted to be a singer. And I love singing. So it became very clear it's time. And what year did you transition into medical school? So we st I started back with a lot of the pre-med stuff in I took one course in 2008, but 2009 was when I really began to start trying to do, uh, trying to finish out my opera contracts. Taking chemistry while going on the road for a month at a time was not, once again, the greatest decision I ever made, but I got through it. And it took me, I started applying. I had taken the MCAT and whatnot by 2013. I started applying in 2013. I didn't get in until 2016. And Fun fact for the, the medically curious among us, the average applicant in the United States takes two and a half years per institution to get into medical school. So if you don't get in the first time, it's kind of like being in fight club. Go stand on the porch mm -hmm. and stay there until they let you in. Make them tell you no over and over and over again. So you were towards the end then of your, of your medical education when the pandemic broke out. I mean, you That's had correct. already, I guess, or had you already started a residency at that point? Or what was the timeline there? So the pandemic, I was actually in my, at the end of my MBA year at Kansas, ah. when that when that came along, March of 2019, I think, uh, no, 2020, geez, losing my brain here. It's been a minute. <laughs> but, uh, this is happening to everybody now. It's happened yeah. yesterday in one of my calls. We were, we were struggling for the, for the years because it's now, you know, we're getting into, in, closing up year two on this and, and we'll be exactly. in the third year pretty soon. Right. Well, and what wound up happening was we, we had gone on spring break right as things were really starting to ramp up and we realized that we were going to have to kind of uh, close up shop for, uh, for what we thought at that point. Remember at the beginning, it was two weeks to stop the spread and 18 months to two years later, here we are. So right. yeah. Anyway. Um, so what wound up happening though was we went on spring break and the school of business at Kansas said, keep your powder dry. We may be going to all online. And the poor folks who have to do all this stuff had to put together an online curriculum in the course of about two weeks. So we finished up the last six weeks of my MBA online. And then at that point in time, we were, we were just kind of getting the hang of what was and was not happening in terms of being able being able to go back to school and start doing rotations again. So I had to, uh, let me back up for a second. I did my MBA between my third and fourth years of medical school. And when the when the pandemic really struck, most people, as a matter of fact, all people who were in their third and fourth years of, of medical school were kicked off campus for the most part. I mean, they were saying, OK, we can't keep you safe. We don't have enough uh, protective gear for you. Go home. We'll be in touch. And it didn't matter whether it was students or even residents. There are a number of, of residents that in particularly in the surgical fields that I talked to who said, yeah, I, uh, I got a whole bunch of extra sleep and I was out of work for probably a good six to eight weeks while they figured out what to do with us. And when they came back, it was a very, very reduced workload that they were on. So that was it was all kinds of strangeness for everybody. It's interesting and not exactly what I would expect. I guess maybe there's legal restrictions on what you can do while you're still finishing your degree uh, that keep you from being used in a clinical setting. I mean, it's hard for me. You know, when we cast our mind back to that time 
I guess the other thing, you're in Kansas. So, I mean, mm. I don't know. Did medical students in New York and California have a different experience of this? Because to my knowledge, was... it, well, the, 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 the way things were done was when we graduated, and I can't speak to the folks in New York, California, et cetera. I know that they, that they were more strenuously locked down than we were. But mm. what happened with us was the, the, the folks who graduated uh, in 2020, were given the opportunity to volunteer to go do to go help out in rural areas where there was a, a physician shortage and at least be be of some help out there they weren't allowed to do a whole lot because they had to they, everybody had to work out licensure uh, components to it but a lot of the caution that was used was to my understanding now this this is what i'm about to say does not speak for the university of kansas school of medicine i don't know what the thinking was at that point, but the decision was made that we don't have enough gear and we can't really keep you safe. The best thing we can do to make sure that, that nobody gets themselves into trouble is have you hang back while we get a handle on this situation. So that's largely what they did. So, But how tightly organized is the average medical school curriculum? I mean, is there any space in there um, for six weeks not off but six weeks sort of out of out of phase i'm i'm and i ask this because you know other medical students i've spoken to you're graduated now but students sure. who are either along in the track um or recently graduated they really talk about how the differences in the different years are pretty profound you know so they if you're are. in year one it's one thing if you're in year two or three it's a quite different thing so when you become more advanced is there more mm -hmm. slack in the system or no there's more there's usually more room there, there's more room to maneuver with kansas they tend to give us a lot of time off after what we call match day where we find out where we're headed for residency and what have you and so that eased the burden a little bit there were some people who still had to do a few electives and things like that during third year was when it was the worst for most of these people because they're in the middle of their six core rotations that sort of define how their clinical grades are because the the when you're making the decision to interview or not interview a candidate you're looking at two sets of board scores and you're looking at three years of medical school the fourth year at least for us was somewhat superfluous it's really at that point it's more electives it's more establishing what it is you want to do with the rest of your life and so there was more room to maneuver for fourth year students Third-year students in particular, however, really got thrown behind the eight ball because if you're on surgery or if you're on OBGYN, you can't really deliver babies via Zoom. Right. You can't really cut somebody open or sew up a cut on Zoom and let alone see procedures because thou shalt not bring the camera into the operating room. Right, right. And um, tell me a little bit about this, about the MBA and, and the thinking of merging an MD and an MBA training, why was that a good fit for you? That was something that goes back to all the doctors I was around growing up. They all said the same thing. And it was underscored by my father, who's in, who has his own practice in, in Louisiana. They all said the same thing. You get into practice and you know all this stuff about medicine and you realize that it's a business and you need to know something about business to really be able to compete and to really be able to manage the things that are going on around you, even if you're working for a big shop, if you're working for a big academic shop, if you're working for another big shop like Kaiser Permanente, or if you're working for uh, HCA or any of the any of the big provider groups in in the country, 
if you don't know the cellular pathway of a dollar, you can still make a living, but you're really at the mercy of other people. And in order to be able to understand what's going on that drives how healthcare evolves in this country, you need to understand the, the money behind it. The other thing that it also does is, I didn't know this was going to happen when I got in there, but it gave me some the first formal leadership training I'd had. The nice thing about the Kansas MBA, I'm going to plug them for a moment here, is that they bring in six supply officers from the Navy every year. That are the, 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 the Navy, to my knowledge, has a fairly aggressive competition for these supply officers to get that MBA program to, to, to teach them how to manage particularly petroleum supplies, but, but keep, the, to keep the fleet going. And having them around to help with the leadership training process was absolutely invaluable. I, I really learned a ton about that from them but also understanding the supply chain, understanding where you can have vulnerabilities to the point where you, where, when you need to explain why, doc, we can't do this surgery today because we don't have the gear. Okay, where's the problem? Is, and and is, the, is the problem at the user level? Is it at the distributor level? Is it at the manufacturer level? And what have you. And, that, and understanding how that mess is made and how to make sure that you are most prepared for any disruption in there. And Unfortunately, what we found out during the pandemic is we were prepared for that sort of thing at the distributor to end user level. But when things get blown up at the, at the manufacturer level, there we got a problem because a lot of places ran out of gear. Did you see that there and where you're located? Uh, what kind Very of things? So. Did, really? And what were the most acute shortages? <sighs> um, masks. <laughs> Uh, masks were very hard to come by, the, uh, particularly the N95. I mean, if you want, if you'll recall, the first six months of, of the pandemic, good luck finding one. And the other thing is, there were a lot of very effective scams run on N95s. That was not a lot of fun. Um, what were some of the other ones? The gowns, in particular, uh, sterile gowns for operating with. It used to be that you could go into the operating room, and and operating rooms, in my experience are kept at a temperature that's, that approaches that necessary for cryogenic sleep for deep space flight. Um, you know, if you can still feel your toes by the end of the procedure, right. it must've been a little warm, right. but you would routinely put on a gown to keep yourself warm, just sitting in the operating room. Nope. You're in bare, you're in bare arms now, kids. We're going to, we're going to really test your endurance there. Wow. That um, just a quick reminder to everybody that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Thomas Irwin today, and Thomas is with the University of Kansas Cancer Center's Melanoma Project and a recent graduate from medical school. I wanted to ask you a kind of a general question, but you could address it however you like. I'm also interested in sort of scientific angle on this. But what did you, what do you think you learned that you might not have otherwise? Uh, you know about about medicine, about uh, doctor-patient relationship, about anything, um, you know, experiencing this pandemic at, at this sort of crucial time in your professional training? 
the first thing I would describe the experience as was the whole thing was very weird because it, it was just a, such a tremendous disruption to the day-to-day -day life. But scientifically, the public got a very large look at how science is made and how unclear it is. Science is not a fixed thing. It's constantly on the move. And a lot of the things that we took for granted 18 months ago have been disproven. Uh, we found out relatively early on that it doesn't spread very well outdoors. COVID doesn't. We also toyed with a bunch of different medications. But the thing is, we're 18 months into it now. And we're still working on what can we give people as treatment that will keep them out of the hospital if they do get sick. And we're just now starting to get there. I mean, we know that we know that we've had good results with the monoclonal antibody known as Regeneron, but there's been a recent study in Brazil that says that you can use a specific antidepressant and it somehow manages to keep people from getting sick enough to need to be hospitalized. That's not on its mechanisms list. That's not what we learned about it, but it, it, the, this study from Brazil actually makes a lot more sense than many does, or many do rather, English is hard. And so that sort of thing, but we, we've dallied with a whole bunch of different drugs along the way, but we still don't have good guidance on what we can give you if you start to get it to say, let's make sure you don't get sick enough that we've got to hospitalize you. This is in motion right now. And that's, that's going to be that way for a while, whereas we are where we are comparably to say influenza, well, we've had a hundred years to work on flu. We're, we're getting the hang of that after a century, but it could take us that long to really feel like COVID, which for all intents and purposes now is an endemic disease and it's not gonna ever completely go away. Uh, getting it to the point where we've got the flu or the common cold, is gonna take a while. And at some point, it, it, kind of delving into what we've learned societally and from a, a personal perspective, we're approaching a point now, in my opinion, and again, this is mine only, I do not speak for the University of Kansas, let alone the medical profession when it comes to this, but we're coming to the point where we need to make a decision about learning to live with, with this serious disease that in the, in the vulnerable population can be absolutely lethal, and it's been shown to be lethal. And in a, in a big chunk of the population at the same time, it's a, it's a, it, it comes on like a cold. We don't know why that is. And we need to get, we need to figure out why that is. But what we've done in the, in the meantime is that we, we did what we had to do early on, but there we've, we've stayed stuck in that early on mentality in a lot of parts of the country and, and of the world. And people are pushing back, which leads me to the next point, which is, the main thing I learned as a doctor is that we need to really work on our sales pitch and on our customer service skills, because if we want people to be compliant with getting vaccinated, with trusting us that we're going to steer them the right way on what medications to use and things of that ilk, there has been a segment of medicine that has said, because I said so. And I would humbly point out to my dear colleagues, that didn't work when your dad said that to, to you when you were five. What makes you think it's going to work on adults? And so what I've seen, though, what I'm very encouraged by is I'm seeing a lot greater effort made by a lot of physicians to, to reestablish 
one of the things we talk about in medical school, which is the patient provider partnership approach to things. What we do, what I do as your doctor, what you do as my patient in terms of your treatment has to be something we agree upon. And if I can't sell you on it, it doesn't matter how good an idea it is, you're not going to do it. Hmm. And if the effort is not made to improve that sales pitch, to figure out how do I reach my patient where they are to understand where they're coming from so that they understand where I'm coming from. And so we can find that middle ground that's going to lead to their best outcomes. We're just yelling at each other. And if we want to do that, we can go to social media for that whole other topic. Learn to yeah. hate social media over the last several months, but, but yeah. that's kind of where we are, but we're fighting all that noise when what it really, what I think has been the most important thing to emphasize going forward is let's get back to that one-on-one -on -one relationship. Let's get to that point in medicine so that we're, we're taking care of patients, not just as patients, but as our customers. So that we're taking care of what their needs are, not just physically, not just medically, but spiritually, emotionally, so that they have a better relationship with us so that we engender their trust. Because that has been a very big sacrificial lamb of the last 18 months. That's a fascinating set of insights. Thank you. And I, I wonder, you know, since you are um, part of a multi-generational family of doctors, mm -hmm. if you, you know, if you see a trend or if that's something that's spoken of in your family, this issue of trust, of course, has been paramount mm -hmm. in the pandemic, um, in the United States particularly. Sure. And is it the case that expertise, more generally medical expertise, um, has lost a foothold on, on trust in, in the United States? Is something more complex going on? Does it have to do, you know, the doctor-patient relationship is one thing, but of course, when you, as earlier you talked about these huge corporate medical providers and insurance companies, I think a lot of times it's hard for people to know in the United States uh, when you say, well, go see the doctor, it's a that can mean a lot of different things. And so I wonder about this mm -hmm. issue of, of trust and, and is it something that you see as, as in, in flux over time or this is just unique to this pandemic moment in which there've been a lot of pressures pushing and pulling people to decide who they should trust? Right, the thing is, it's not, it's not isolated solely to the United States, first and foremost. Uh, the, 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 my contacts that I have are largely in Canada and in Europe and they all say the same thing that, that there is a great amount of mistrust going on in Canada, in Western Europe. Uh, and, and, and we see some of it in Eastern Europe as well, where a lot of people don't trust what they're hearing from their experts, he said in air quotes. And the, the thing that I hear the most from my colleagues is that there's not enough of an emphasis on acknowledging when we got it wrong and when we got it wrong, how we got it wrong, what we're doing to make it right. The, there, in the United States, there are a lot of people who really, really, really like being on TV. And as, as, a, TV, as a TV veteran, I get it. I completely get it. But all of a sudden, they get recognized in the grocery store, and they have a certain, they have a certain following that loves them and loves that you're doing absolutely great, and I want you to keep doing what you're doing. And it's easy to get caught up in that bubble. And the, the, the thing about that is that once again, it isolates a lot of these folks from taking care of individual patients. And a lot of the people who get up on TV aren't actually taking care of patients. They're, 
you know, they're, they're either public, public health officials or they're, or they're the kinds of doctors that don't have as much interaction with patients. Now, the thing is, it's different on, on, on with some of the people talking locally, that might be a little different, but your state and federal level health officials usually don't take care of patients. And so they don't see how it affects things at the, at the individual level. If that's, if, if, I mean, if, if that's kind of answering the question, I kind of got a feel from it, lost my train of thought in there. So no, I think, <laughs> get me no, back absolutely. on board there, but. Yeah. No, I think that's and but there's a tension in there that's very hard to mm -hmm. to escape, which is that you know for people who move into positions of say you know policy making and leadership, mm -hmm. uh, be very hard for them to keep. If we're in science, very hard for them to keep the a lab going, or if they're in medical practice, very hard to keep the medical practice going. And and I think you're you're speaking obviously you're speaking to me at least of a, a really mm -hmm. acute need that that we've seen, and maybe it had already been happening, but the pandemic has really shined a bright light on it, This, this, that you don't build trust. Um, experts don't build trust, and then it's a one-time thing. Yep. And I think this is true for educators. I think it's true for engineers. I think it's mm -hmm. true for politicians, um, that it's, it's a constant, it's part of a relationship. And in places where that relationship was either non-existent to begin with or frayed, that this pandemic wasn't just about can we get people into an ICU? It was can we get people to trust that the government and these doctors have their best interest in heart? And it's been painful to watch, frankly. And you've also seen the the regrettable thing about this is that it got is politics has become the national religion in the United States, for better or for worse, and for my take, for worse. You had you had a massive flip of attitudes right around election day. You had people saying, "I'm not taking Trump's vaccine," and now they're like, "If you don't get if you don't get vaccinated or if you get COVID, it's a moral failing." Y'all, we got to stop that. Um, we got to stop that. I mean, that, that's that it doesn't help because people getting sick is is some is it avoidable sometimes? Yeah, it can be, but if we start if we start, for instance, basing our our judgments about treatment on people's moral failings, the emergency room is going to be out of business. Because what does the emergency room do? We put back together people who go through windshields because they had four beers before they drove. Hopefully they didn't kill anybody else. Or we get people who come in with sexually transmitted diseases. Well, that sort of thing. Or we or they they come in and they've overdosed on drugs. We're not helping if we try to make moral judgments about our patients that's not right. our job and we're and the other thing is we're doctors we're not your mother-in-law and we're not your priest or rabbi or your religious leader whatever fits in that space for your religious leader and right. i think that i think that we we do ourselves a disservice as a profession if we lose sight of that just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls i'm talking to dr thomas Irwin today and i want to ask you some um more specific things about what mm -hmm. you see in terms of medical education, what people have been going through during the pandemic, you wrote a really great piece on doximity.com in their op-med section about, and it's about the great unmatched, which for those who are not familiar with medical school might not know uh, what that means. I'm just going to, well, I'm just going to read a couple of lines from it. It's, it's beautifully written and everybody should check this out and I'll put the link up to it. But you talk about, um, you know, this problem of maybe first you should set the stage and then I'll read a couple of sentences for it. I mean, what, is, what does it mean to be unmatched in a medical okay. school perspective? When you get done with medical school, you are, not, you are an MD 
or a DO for my osteopathic friends. You are not a doctor yet. You still have, it would be the equivalent of doing postdoctorate training. Uh, but depending on the specialty you go, you choose to go into, you may spend three to seven years of postgraduate medical education. Uh, the, 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 the longest ones are things like neurosurgery. The shortest ones are uh, fields like family medicine, internal medicine, which are three years. And the thing is, a lot of people will go on and do another year called fellowship after that. And around March, that's when we find out where we, we apply to a whole bunch of different programs and we find out if and where we've matched. And it's usually somewhere away from the, our home institution. And so that is a time of great stress and hair loss for many, many medical students. And there's a chunk of the, of the graduating population, both in the US and in, uh, in medical schools in the, in the Caribbean, we call them uh, international uh, medical graduates and foreign medical graduates who went to school completely overseas and are from other countries where they're trying to match and they don't. And in this past, uh, in this past year right now, there were four applicants for every three residency positions. And as a result, a lot of qualified people, me included, were sitting out at the end of it. And that was, uh, that was a time of wailing and gnashing of teeth and wearing sackcloth and dining on ashes, but you know. Well, let me, let me just give a, a couple lines from the piece you say, for some, this moment will mean taking an extra year and uh, doing something to fill in the time and simply reapplying next year. You write for others, it will mean taking a deep breath and figuring out what else in medicine you can live with doing. And for still others, it will mean exploring the adjacent possible to the medical field. What you can do outside of clinical and academic medicine with your MD or DO and letting go of residency or clinical practice, nobody can tell you what the answer is. You have to decide that. I wonder this vantage point that you bring um, to this must be also informed by the fact that you had a full career before you started medicine. It allowed me to, to, to see, I'm going to quote myself here, but it allowed me to see the adjacent possible. You get knocked down by that. And it's, it is a horrible feeling. It was, I, as a, as a longtime new Orleans saints fan, soul crushing defeat is something I am painfully familiar with. And, the thing is that you, certainly you have to mourn, you have to let the dust settle, but you have to keep moving. And the, th the thing is, the reality of the situation is we graduate from medical school, we've taken out the equivalent of a, of a mortgage on a house in a, a small house in a, in a relatively smaller housing market, certainly not a California or a New York, but still. You know, but but the, the, average, the average student these days comes out with about $250,000 in debt which is substantial. And the first thing that comes to mind is how am I going to pay that off? And also is my career over? Am I going to be able to do something that I want to do? Am I going to be able to, you're already, you're a doctor at that point. I mean, you're, you know, at least, you know, with the degree, but you can't practice because you have to go find something that, that will allow you to train to the point where you have enough genuine experience to practice. And you've got to figure out as well, once again, there are a lot of fields of medicine that you can get into, but can you live with that? Can you live with, I, if, if somebody wanted to be a neurosurgeon 
And for whatever reason, they didn't match. And when they go talk to their academic advisor and their program director, they're saying, I don't see it happening for you. Can you live with doing general surgery or can you live with going into something more on the on the on the medicine side, for instance? And, you know, can you live with doing family medicine? Can you live with doing psychiatry? That sort of thing. For some, that's not an acceptable outcome. And that's where, again, exploring different ways to get in becomes an important thing. And But the, the thing that it also underscores is that you have to think about advancing your resume in that time. I mean, you, you can't just stop. You've got to figure out a way to keep advancing yourself as a professional in order to have a more competitive resume the following year. And for some of us, in, in, in my situation, I was very fortunate. My dean and assistant dean uh, said, listen, we think we've got a spot for you. It's, it's a, a paid spot. You'd be doing melanoma research. And I said, that sounds fantastic. And writing is something I like to do. And I'm starting to put out papers in that. And they're getting published. And all of a sudden, my resume is slowly inflating more and more and more. But you're still in a position where there's nothing you can do about your board scores. Now, what you have to do is develop your work resume so that when people take a look at you, they say, I'm looking at, at, at in this case, I'm looking at Tom's uh, letters of recommendation. I'm looking at what he's put on his resume. And the people he works with really love him. And tell you what, let's see if maybe there's a one-year program, we'll call, we call those preliminary years, where he can come in and audition for us for a year and we'll see what we think. And that's the foot in the door that or and there's some people who, you know, maybe they miss it for a year, but fine, they'll jump back in. They'll try again. They'll apply more broadly and they'll get into something. And it and it was a rough year for them, but they got to do what they wanted to do. And one way or another, being able to see that, being able to see what's out, what else is out there. Is there an insurance company you can go work for for a while? And by the way, folks, for folks with MDs or DOs who didn't match, going to work for insurance companies can be a true windfall financially for them where they can pay off their debts in a, in a couple of years. That's another, that's another huge thing. We've, we've enjoyed having a, a student, a, a student loan interest uh, suspension for the last uh, several months, but that ends in, in January and the meter starts running right away right. at that point. So, and, and is it, is it COVID that caused the contraction in residencies and then stopped people from being able to do residencies away? So it created this sort of regional pockets where you had maybe too many doctors, young doctors looking for residency. Uh, help me understand the sort of supply and, and demand dynamics of this. Sure. This actually goes back to the mid 90s. Um, an attempt, a lot of schools increased the size of their medical student classes. And I am not the I am not the 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 foremost expert on exactly how this happened because at that it, it, when this legislation was passed in the 90s my hair was down to my waist and I wore any color as long as it was black so and was generally playing rock and roll but they they increased the number of medical student positions in the country but they didn't increase the number of residency spots and what happened with covid is all of the interviews became virtual you didn't where what used to happen is you had used to have to fly to every program you wanted to interview with, which at you know, for it, let's let's be kind and say at 400 bucks a round ticket plus housing, plus transportation, plus meals. You were spending a lot of money very quickly that way. And people could only interview for, say, 10 programs at best. Well, now 
with all the all the uh, interviews being done on Zoom, you can interview for everybody that comes along. You don't have to choose. And then all of a sudden, you where you might have had a list of programs that you interviewed with it listed about 10. Now you can list 25, 30. Some, there, there were some jerks I know who got 40, and I will slap them later. But, uh, but what also happened was it threw the doors open, and this is a good thing for the international medical grads and foreign medical grads to have a shot at getting a U.S.-based residency where they previously might not have been able to get over here and do that. And it's, it's not a two-way street. It, you, can't, you can't go to Canada or the United Kingdom or Australia, do residency there, and be licensed to practice in the United States. So there's a finite number of residency mm. positions out there, and the vast majority of them filled this past year. And so a lot of good qualified people that I know who either up, up, applied a little too narrowly, and that's certainly one of the things that happened with me, or they applied to something that was probably, they were, they were probably trying to apply for something that was a little outside their board score range. They were sitting on the sidelines saying, what do I do now? I'm, I'm this much in debt and I have no idea what to do with my life now. I wonder what's going to happen. You know, I mean, I think about this time as one that if I was, um, you know, in middle school or high school right now and I'm looking at the world and this pandemic, uh, even if I wasn't a great science student, I'd probably be thinking about going into nursing or medicine. It would be something that would be on my mind because it's on the front page of the newspaper and, and social media and everywhere we look all the time. Um, but what you're describing are sort of structural pressures within the profession, which have been exacerbated by the pandemic. That's mm -hmm. creating a pinch point for people who are just at the at the moment when they should be uh, being placed and getting that final training that they need to be doctors. So I, I wonder. I mean, what do you think might might happen here? I mean, it seems a little counterintuitive, but do you worry that people are going to leave the profession now? Well, people are leaving the profession, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. it, 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 COVID burnout's a real thing among a lot of doctors and a lot of nurses in particular because you have a lot of people who got into it not expecting to have this many people die on them or they they didn't think that going to work was going to become a genuine threat to their lives and i have very mixed emotions about that but the thing is that my opinion on that doesn't matter that's where they're coming from and that's how they're making their career decisions and the problem is that we're all of a sudden we're in a position now where you for instance you have a lot of of shops that are laying off or firing their unvaccinated groups. Well, okay, I mean, they've got to do what they've got to do, but all of a sudden now you have a tremendous self-inflicted labor shortage. And the, and the thing is that that's not even necessarily limited solely to medicine. I mean, you have a labor shortage nationwide right now in the United States. You know where you you know you have restaurants that that, that don't have enough servers, and Thanksgiving's no fun for them. I'm here to tell you. And but where we don't have enough nurses floating around, we have doctors who, they, you know, particularly in some of the in some of the um, the the fields where they care specifically for the dying, they get 18 months in and they're emotionally shot. They can't do it anymore. And they're saying, I've had enough. I'm out. I'll go do something else. I will go sell used cars, but I'm done with medicine. And that's where. And so once again, we're seeing an exacerbation of the labor shortage. And people, people get into medical school, nursing school, and the other allied health professions, like the, another group that's, that's really fallen on hard times is respiratory therapists. Why? Mm. 
because they're dealing with people's people's airway tubes. You know, and that's that if you're working with COVID patients, well, you've got a really good shot of getting infected that way. And, you know, I mean, to the point where the thing about the vaccine is the vaccine raises the, the amount of virus you have to get into your body before you're going to get sick. But the thing is, past a certain point, if you get enough virus in there, it'll say, I laugh at your puny immune system and Conan, right. turn into Conan the Barbarian. So, right. Yeah. Well, um, we're, we're almost up on time, but I wanted to, sure. there's one more question. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I wanted to return kind of back to where we started uh-huh. with music and, and, and opera specifically and preparing mm-hmm. for this discussion. I thought, thought about the unique set of skills that you, that you carry and has, do you see art generally, but opera specifically offering you some kind of tools to cope with a time like this, to cope with loss? I mean, it's an art form that ruminates on, on death honestly, right. <laughs> and tries and tries to find beauty mm-hmm. in suffering. I guess in many ways, that's what all great art yeah. does. But I think of opera particularly in that sense. Sure. The, the answer is absolutely. The, just before, the, the last full production I did was I got to go down to San Augustine, Florida to perform uh, the, the role of Chouinard in La Boheme. Uh, that's one of Puccini's big four. Uh, that was that was just prior to the uh, the pandemic, and singing for me, and frankly, even for, even playing bass as well, it's cathartic. It, it's you know it, in 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 the same way that dance is, in the same way that acting is, you're unleashing that set of emotions and the ability also to descend into just the pure pursuit of technique to turn off your mind and just do for however long you can, that becomes in and of itself a way to ventilate a lot of these very toxic emotions. The other thing that also happened during the pandemic was I got to play bass on a number of friends' records through the magic of being able to record from home. Uh, you know, you know, thank God for technology. And you saw a number of acts do this. You saw these wonderful jam sessions. I, I, if memory serves, the Wilson sisters from Heart got together with Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters and did nothing but jam on heart covers. Awesome. Wonderful. Love it. And the other thing was that I got to sit down and write some of my own stuff that we're still working on finishing up the recordings of, but these are songs that have been floating around in my brain since the mid nineties. And they might still sound like that. Don't judge me. (laughs) But the, the upshot of all this is that it really does allow you to go hunt for the beauty in life because the thing is with all the negativity that's going on going on out there it's kind of like when you're if you're on on social media um it's you see these people who put up videos of their pets and loving their pets and you remind yourself that's what matters that's 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 what we're here for i mean the thing is nobody calls you calls their dire enemy to yell at them when they're dying they call their loved ones and whatnot that's that's so borrowed from love actually but it's still it's it, it completely works and as things have slowed down and whatnot i got to go down and uh and one of my one of my best friends wrote a a a large orchestra piece a requiem and he wrote it around my voice. I got to go perform that this past Tuesday in Texarkana, Texas. It was wonderful. It was a great experience. And my kids got to go play with the orchestra. Can't ask for much more than that. And then as things slowly open up, as the flowers open in 18 months, the winter of our discontent, 
I got to sing for Major League Soccer on national television this past weekend. Life continues, and it's important not to get caught up in the drudgery of the day-to-day, but to find that beauty on a daily basis, because otherwise things can be really grim and gray. And that that is what I think defines longevity and resilience that hopefully we've all learned a little bit more about in the past 18 months. Just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join my COVID Calls discussion tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern Time when I talk to Professor Justin Mann, Professor of Africana Studies, and we're going to have a great discussion uh, about uh, fiction and about films and about the Black experience of inequality in the pandemic. So please do join me for that tomorrow. And I just want to take a second here to thank my guest, Thomas Irwin, uh, who is presently at Kansas University of Kansas uh, Cancer Center's Melanoma Project and uh, an artist and musician and writer and many other things as well. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Thomas. It's been enlightening for me. Thank you so much for your time today. I had a great time with you, Dr. Knowles. Thanks so much for having me. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm-hmm.